This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers says that the Racine County Sheriff's Office should file charges if they believe Wisconsin's election laws were broken at a Mount Pleasant nursing home last year. Evers' statements come after Racine County Sheriff Christopher Schmalling alleged last week that some nursing home residents had their ballots filled in by nursing home staff. According to the Associated Press, Schmalling hasn't yet recommended any charges in the case. Instead, he's asking the state's Department of Justice to launch a statewide investigation into nursing home voting and guidance on nursing home voting issued by the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The DOJ has so far rejected Schmalling's request. Speaking reporters to, to reporters today, Evers said, quote, If indeed something happened at a single Racine County nursing home, that should be investigated and charges brought if there is a crime, unquote. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Michael Gableman is paying a total of $20,500 per month to five staff members to conduct his review of the November 2020 election. Gableman, a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, was tasked with leading the review by the state assembly speaker Robin Voss. Despite being paid using taxpayer dollars, the identities of the five staffers have been largely kept a secret, except for one, Carol Matthews, a California attorney who works with the Conservative Federalist Society. Gableman has been allocated $676,000 to conduct the investigation. According to documents released to the journal Sentinel, he has spent roughly $96,000 so far. The Madison School Board is poised to vote on changes to the district's field trip policies. That comes nearly two years after former East High School teacher David Critchen placed hidden cameras in students' hotel rooms during a field trip. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the district's field trip policies haven't been updated since 2016. The proposed changes would, among other things, ensure there is emergency contact info for district administrators responsible for the trips and mandate new reporting and communication policies for chaperones. The new policies are still being finalized and haven't been scheduled for a vote before the full board. Madison High School students received a higher percentage of A grades than they did during the 2020-2021 school year than they did during the 2018-2019 school year. That's according to records obtained by the Capital Times. Comparing last school year's grades to the 2019-2020 school year is not a clean lineup as the district pivoted all classes to pass-fail during the final quarter of that school year as the COVID-19 pandemic moved classes online. The data also reflects gaps in academic outcomes among students of different races. Of the grades given to Black high school students last school year, 22.5% were A's. That's well below the district-wide rate of nearly 45%. The first batch of new tiny houses went up yesterday in the 3200 block of Dairy Drive. The project, which will eventually include 30 tiny shelters, will provide shelter for the city's unhoused residents. They'll eventually serve as an alternative to Rindall Park, one of Madison's temporarily permitted encampments for unhoused folks. The fate of the Rindall camp and its residents has been the subject of debate among city leaders in recent months. The new site at Dairy Drive is located on the city's southeast side, about seven miles south of Rindall Park. And now your daily COVID-19 update via the state's Department of Health Services. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new COVID cases currently stands at 1,904. 55% of the state's population, or just north of 3.2 million people, have completed their vaccination series. 
And also related to vaccines, healthcare providers are gearing up to start supplying COVID vaccines to kids between the ages of 5 to 11. That's still pending, though, based on a decision expected today from the Center for Disease Control Advisory Panel and the agency's director. If the vaccine receives those seals of approval, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services and local health agencies will oversee the vaccine rollout for the state. According to the Associated Press, Wisconsin's vaccine distributors could begin administering doses to kids by the end of the week. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier today, the People's Maps Commission released its final proposals for Wisconsin's legislative and congressional districts. The nonpartisan commission was established by Governor Tony Evers last year as an attempt to remove partisan politics from the state's decennial redistricting process. WORT reporter Carolina Bursian has the story. At a press conference in the Capitol Rotunda today, Governor Tony Evers and Christopher Ford, chair of the People's Maps Commission, unveiled the commission's final recommendations for new voting districts. Ford says that one of the main goals of the commission was to provide citizens with the opportunity to give input on redistricting. The commission has spent roughly a year soliciting feedback from communities across the state. Our commission has held Wisconsinites as the foremost authorities throughout our process, as it is they who live in these communities every day. They work in these communities. They raise their families in these communities. They know the issues inherent to these communities. Yet, as we heard from many Wisconsinites, they felt as though their interests were not reflected in the current maps that they lived under. We hope to change that with these maps. The commission was established by Governor Tony Evers last year. Evers created the group to attempt to limit partisan back and forth during the state's redistricting process. The courts have weighed in on every redistricting process going back to the 1960s. The Republican-controlled legislature released their own set of maps last month, which drew strong criticism from Democrats and voting rights groups. The Republicans' proposed maps would essentially keep them in power for the next decade, as they're based largely on the state's current gerrymandered maps. Ford says the commission's proposals would make more substantial alterations to the current maps. Ford acknowledged that those changes may lead to some, quote, temporary disenfranchisement, unquote. Again, we attempted to disenfranchise as least amount of people as possible. Um, The current uh, proposition by the current legislator is to keep the maps as our least amount of changes as possible. However, we wanted to make changes where we saw fit to make the opportunities better for the people of the state of Wisconsin. And so although there is some temporary disenfranchisement, we want to fight against permanent disenfranchisement of those individuals. Deborah Cronmiller, Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, expressed support for the commission and its recommendations. We were delighted to see that the commission was formed, that the commission embraced a number of best practices that the League of Women Voters all across the nation has supported, which is a process that is transparent, that is replete with public input, that is responsive to the will of the voters. The Princeton Gerrymandering Project, a redistricting watchdog project, gave both the Commission's Assembly and Senate maps an overall grade of A. They also stated that future elections for the Assembly and Senate would be significantly more competitive than they are currently. The same group gave an F to the Republican-drawn maps. So toward that end, you know, we're, we're hopeful that there's a compare and contrast set of maps 
to what the legislature um, put forward, those maps being analyzed by those same think tanks and getting grades of F. Governor Evers said that the bill to adopt the commission's maps were ready to go. The bill is right here, right now. It's ready to be introduced and considered, and there's not a single excuse I've heard any Republican give as to why they won't take these up, not one. Republicans in the legislature are under no obligation to take up the People's Maps Commission's recommendations. But Governor Evers has said that he will veto the Republicans' current plans unless significant changes are made. The current legislative session adjourns next week, and the maps need to be in place by March 1st. If an agreement cannot be reached, the maps will likely be drawn by either the Wisconsin Supreme Court or a U.S. District Court. For WORT News, I'm Carolina Bursian. The Menominee Nation in Northeast Wisconsin will hold a candlelight vigil tonight to honor victims and survivors of abuse by the church at schools across the nation. They're also calling for the state to open a new investigation into abuses at the state's native residential schools. WORT reporter Nate Wagihout has the story. Earlier this year, hundreds of unmarked graves were discovered at residential schools across Canada containing almost 1,000 Indigenous children. Now, Wisconsin tribal leaders are asking Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call to investigate abuse and deaths at Wisconsin's residential schools. Residential schools were schools set up in the late 1800s by both the Canadian and U.S. government and the Christian Church. The quote-unquote schools stripped indigenous children of their language and cultural identity. Many former students have alleged severe abuse by the clergy who ran these schools. A candlelight vigil is being held tonight by the Menominee tribe to honor those who suffered abuse at the hands of the church. Tribe member Lorraine Shooter, who helped organize the event, said the event's organizers are also calling for AG Call to open a full investigation into the abuses done at the school. We're um, calling for a full investigation. So then we're also asking the archdiocese of Green Bay to acknowledge the abuse as well and to come forward and acknowledge their abuse and um, take proper steps into helping our community heal because the um, Catholic Church, their organization, what they did to our people, our ancestors, created a lot of intergenerational trauma. While Call is currently creating a report on abuse by clergy and faith leaders in Wisconsin, the tribe says that they are not doing enough to help the indigenous people of Wisconsin who are abused at these schools. Nate's mission, a worldwide initiative looking to end clergy abuse, says that outreach and acknowledgement are the first steps. Deputy Director Sarah Pearson explains. Well, I think first his office needs to start with outreach to survivors of clergy sexual abuse and members of the different indigenous tribes across the state of Wisconsin. It's important that that specific outreach is done. So I think what he could do is start by, you know, placing some specific phone calls to leaders within the tribes to make people aware of what's happening. Previous calls to the archdiocese by the tribe were largely ignored, Shooter said, and a protest on the church grounds led to threat of arrest. Shooter says that the acknowledgement and investigation are important first steps for the tribe to heal and feel seen by the church. I think that it would it would show the Menominee tribe that that we're no longer invisible, that our race isn't invisible, that our people are important to the Catholic Church, and that the actions that the Catholic Church and their clergy 
you know, what the harm that they caused our people that they acknowledge that what they did was wrong. And I think that that will be the first steps in a healing process that our people are looking for. In an email to WORT, Call wrote that, quote, the history of Indian boarding schools is shameful and disturbing. I'm glad that U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, has initiated a comprehensive national review and that Governor Evers issued an executive order apologizing for the history of Indian boarding schools in Wisconsin, end quote. Call also encouraged survivors and those with knowledge of abuse at boarding schools to report it. An online tool is at supportsurvivors.widoj.gov. Governor Tony Evers led his support to a state-led investigation into Wisconsin's residential schools last month. The candlelight vigil started at 6 this evening in Kenesha, Wisconsin. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new proposal from state lawmakers seeks to reduce financial barriers for homeowners looking to install rooftop solar panels. The bill calls for streamlining and clarifying rules for what are called third-party solar panels. For more about the proposal, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Carrie Leiterson, a reporter with the Energy News Network. Leiterson just reported an in-depth investigation into third-party solar panels and why Wisconsin lags behind other states in their adoption. So just off the top here, so everybody's on the same page, what is a third-party solar panel installation and how does it differ from a a, a quote-unquote standard installation? So a third-party ownership structure for a solar installation is where an entity other than basically the homeowner or the business or the church, um, whatever the, the physical place where the solar panels are, the solar panels are owned by someone else. So that would often mean that, let's just say it's a homeowner, that the homeowner is actually um, leasing the solar panels that are on their roof from a development company that owns them, or they might be essentially buying the power from the solar panels that are on their roof. And likewise, uh, you know, a third party, usually a solar company, um, owns those panels. So functionally, it essentially removes a a major barrier to entry for solar panels, which is the, the upfront cost of wholesale purchasing one. Is that a good read? Yeah, there's two different major reasons that it's a really helpful structure um, for a homeowner or a small business or even a, a condo or something. 
Um, it does remove that upfront cost, like you might be paying zero upfront cost if you're not actually owning the solar panels. So it does remove that barrier to entry. And then another really important way to do third-party solar is a nonprofit entity like a government agency, a church, a school, a nonprofit healthcare institution. Since all these things are nonprofit, they don't pay taxes, so they can't take advantage of tax incentives. And there are pretty robust tax incentives for solar. Um, I think it's at 26% of the installation cost right now can be, you know, deducted from your taxes if you do pay taxes. But if you don't pay taxes, you don't have that potential unless you do a third-party ownership situation. Um, in that case, the developer, which is a private company or entity, um, can own the panels and reap that tax incentive and then pass that savings on to the person who's actually or the entity that's actually getting the power. So in Wisconsin, these third-party solar setups, aren't they're, they're not necessarily illegal. If I understand it, it's more just that the utility companies are sort of resistant to entering into those agreements. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing in the law in Wisconsin that says these things are illegal, but utility companies in Wisconsin, as in other states, have been um, pretty resistant to distributed solar in general, and um, some utilities more than others. We Energies in particular has been really pretty resistant or even hostile to just the spread of distributed solar on homes and businesses and city buildings. So the utilities would, some of them would maintain that it's illegal in their opinion, but there's no law that says it's illegal. What the utilities are arguing is that not so much the leasing situation, but the situation where you are buying power directly from the panel that's on your own roof, but someone else owns that panel. The utilities have argued, some utilities have argued that this constitutes the owner of that panel acting like a public utility because they're selling you energy. And in a state like Wisconsin, um, only, you know, certain companies, the, the regulated utilities are allowed to sell energy to customers. But um, in, in most states and really in just prevailing opinion, legal opinion and um, energy experts' opinion, you know, if the solar installation is on your own roof and you're buying the power directly from that installation, the owner of that panel is not a utility. Um, that's really the prevailing view, but the utilities have argued otherwise. So solar developers and solar customers are really reluctant to enter these agreements because if the utility takes you to court or, you know, or refuses to connect to the utilities need to essentially connect your installation to the grid. So if the utilities refuse to do that or um, basically just make life difficult or impossible for you to run that solar panel, um, then your investment's in jeopardy and neither the customers nor the developers really want to go through all that hassle. So that's why it's not happening in Wisconsin, even though it's not explicitly illegal. And just so we have a little bit more context, can you outline how Wisconsin stacks up in the prevalence of third-party solar compared to other states? Yeah, there's plenty some states, depending how you define some of the nuances, the numbers can be a little bit different. But solar proponents, actually, some people say that actually every state except Wisconsin explicitly allows these third-party arrangements, um, if you take a little bit more of a conservative um, definition or way of counting, 
there's still 20-some states that very explicitly do allow third-party arrangements. But solar experts in Wisconsin say that Wisconsin is actually the the worst place to try to do third-party solar and that it's really the state that's been most difficult and um, most hostile to third-party-owned solar. But uh, even if you take a more conservative view, it's safe to say that about half the states really clearly allow and encourage third-party-owned solar, and then a lot of other states, it's much more possible to do it than it is in Wisconsin. And so now some lawmakers are are floating draft legislation that seeks to sort of streamline the state's approach to third-party solar. Tell me about the bill. Uh, It's currently circulating for co-sponsors, I believe, but tell me about that bill that's being proposed. Yeah, so this draft bill that's being circulated for co-sponsors and being prepared right now would just clarify that third-party-owned solar is legal. So it actually wouldn't change any laws, but it would just be putting into the statute that it is legal so that there won't be this doubt and there won't be this um, fear that utilities will refuse to connect the solar installation to the grid. And in the past, um, there's just been neither the courts nor the Public Service Commission, which regulates energy, nor the legislature have stepped forward and, you know, essentially taken a clear stance on this one way or another. So um, the aim of the bill is to just have the legislature do this, make it explicit in state law that these things, these third-party owned installations are legal, and then there's apparently a lot of demand for them that can be unleashed and, you know, a lot more solar can get built. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks for thanks for talking. Carrie Leiderson is a reporter with the Energy News Network, and we'll have a link to her full write-up in the online version of this interview at wortfm.org. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call talks about a need for affordable housing by UW-Madison students. Wildlife Weekly hatches some not-so-humble condor chicks. And Radio Astronomy explains what it takes to make a moon. But now I'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Support for this program is provided by Madison Essentials, Southern Wisconsin's magazine 100% dedicated to covering local businesses, nonprofits, and people making a difference in our local communities. Now publishing six issues per year, providing fresh, local, compelling content every other month at over 200 convenient pickup spots or online at madisonessentials.com. WORT thanks its listener sponsors and the UW-Madison Department of Theater and Drama's production of Moliere's Don Juan, performing November 4th through 21st in the Gilbert V. Hemsley Theater at Vilas Hall on the UW-Madison campus. Tickets and information at theater.wisc.edu. Support for this program comes from WORT's listener sponsors and Hoyos Consulting, providing high-speed business internet, data center, co-location, and network consulting. Proud to have grown through referrals and proud to support the shared values of WORT Community Radio. HoyosConsulting.com
time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW Madison student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, its reporters tackle affordable housing for students. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Today we're sharing a conversation about housing equity, featuring the social justice hub's Parnika Shukla. Our Student Dive podcast co-host on our Durham talks with Madeline Afonso, who sat down with Parnika for a Q&A. That's featured in our new print edition, which is now available at campus area locations. Parnika Shukla is the Housing Equity Director at the Social Justice Hub at UW-Madison. She sat down for a Q&A with the Daily Cardinal's Madeline Afonso to talk about her work advocating for housing stability in the Madison community. Thanks so much for joining us, Madeline, and for bringing us this story. Of course. Parnika is a part of the Housing Equity team within the Social Justice Hub. Can you explain a little bit more about the Social Justice Hub in general, and what are the main goals of this organization, if you know? The Social Justice Hub, I believe, houses a bunch of different action teams. I know there's a a food one, there's obviously the housing equity team, and within there, they each have their own set of values. So the housing one, they obviously value bringing awareness to housing um, and homelessness within the Madison community and and near campus as well. You know, people who do have that privilege of having housing, which provides so much stability and it provides all these other things, gives you an address for people to locate you and things like that. Um, people like us, I think it's important for us to stand up for those who don't have those same privileges. And um, yeah, I think it means a lot to them as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what the housing equity team does to raise awareness about the housing inequality in Dane County and in the campus in general? Yeah. They host volunteer opportunities every week. They go to First United Methodist Church, I believe, and different like food pantry events. And I, I believe they also do weekly discussions. I don't know if those are going on, but where they would pick a topic relating to homelessness and you know discuss and try and learn more about it which is really cool. That is really cool. Uh, What did Parnika say got her involved in volunteer work in general? I think she had a background in volunteering and as a pre-med student, you know, she'd want to branch out a little bit more in how she could, you know, pursue volunteer opportunities while being in med school. So she found Porchlight and thought it was a really cool opportunity and she really connected with the homeless community and meeting people there. You know, she can take that with her when she becomes a doctor and can help out at clinics um, for rural populations, which is really awesome. I was looking for like health-related volunteering opportunities like around Madison and I came across um, a, uh, it was like a COVID um, health assessment volunteer. So um, there's actually an, a men's emergency shelter location on 1st Street, 200 North 1st Street um, by Porchlight, or it's like like uh, made by Porchlight. And um, so as volunteers, we would just um, kind of ask every guest who's coming in what their symptoms were, check their temperature, and if they're having somebody, like have them talk to a nurse. 
And although it was kind of like health related and kind of seems like very like monotonous, it was like great because we actually got to talk to people um, and kind of like, you know, again, like hear their stories and hear what they had to say and hear about like their daily struggles and all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what really got me interested more in like homelessness and um, housing equity, I suppose, in Madison. What else did Parnika have to say about getting involved in just general volunteering at UW outside of maybe the social justice hub or housing equity team? Yeah, she definitely advocated for everyone to try and volunteer somewhere outside of campus because it's very much a bubble of campus. You know, we love UW-Madison. It's fantastic, but there's a whole community outside. I remember my first time volunteering off campus. It was through like a completely different organization, but I remember just like leaving campus like from the bus and just going to like it was through an elementary school and just like going past campus and seeing all these houses and like these neighborhoods and it just felt like a whole different world and when I came back I was like what is this like we we're like in a bubble <laughs> like I was just like so like mind blown almost at like the contrast between campus and like outside of campus and I think like a lot of students like should do that should take the time to volunteer at least like a couple times off campus because like then you really realize that you know this is a home for a lot of people it's not just like we study. it's like a lot yeah. more you should I think everyone should kind of realize that like this is not just you know our college it's also like a home for a lot of people and that means that we have to respect it and do what we can to serve it as well mm-hmm. and I think that's what's great about Madison is that there is a huge community service component to the school that we have the mortgage center for uh, public service mm-hmm. and they do a lot I know with Badger volunteers and other um, organizations within it um, so I feel like it's almost like I'm actually also a, a research peer leader with with science and I think that research is super important um, because again like UW Madison is like a research powerhouse and I think that like research and volunteering are two things that if you are a UW Madison student like you should definitely try to get involved in. And it's kind of confusing sometimes because the campus is so integrated with um, the surrounding community so if you just branch out even a little bit it'll be definitely worthwhile to connect with community members not in the university. Do you plan on pursuing any sort of volunteering opportunities sometime soon? Yes, while interviewing Parnika, I realized I was like, this is really awesome. And I would love to go out and, you know, interact with people that you wouldn't see on the daily because we're always seeing each other, other students, faculty, and that's really it. So it'd be really awesome to go out and see whatever, what everyone else is up to. Oh, for sure. Did she mention if she wants to continue uh, this type of work after she graduates? Yes, definitely. Um, like I mentioned, you know, if you make it through med school, it, there would definitely be lots of opportunities to keep giving back to the community when you have that degree of knowledge and resources yeah. available to you. For sure. Uh, how do you think uh, COVID-19 has affected housing equity? COVID-19... I mean, I would guess a definite negative impact. Um, It made everything more difficult for everyone, so you can't imagine the impacts on people who have less resources and less things available to them. So I'm sure it's really tough and they could all use our support and attention. And I know it probably means a lot to people who are underserved as well, so. Do you know of any other ways that maybe Parnika mentioned that students can get involved in the fight for housing equity specifically with like other organizations or is the housing equity team kind of like the main place to go for that topic? I'd say that one's pretty good. I mean, they have the weekly volunteering, um, which is really easy to sign up for. I know Badger volunteers maybe next semester look through and see if there's any 
opportunities related to housing inequity with them. I'm a Badger volunteer right now and it's really fun. Oh, what do you do with um, Badger volunteers? I go to a garden every week and, you know, help clean up, you know, maintain the garden. It's really nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and finally, what is something that stuck with you from your interview with Pranika? Just the fact that the people was the main um, reason she kept coming back because I really, you know, resonated with that. It's everything you do, it makes it so much more enjoyable when you can get to connect with really cool people and, you know, share something with them and share stories. That's what, you know, the best part of life. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, of Madeline. Course, you're welcome. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. The Q&A you heard about today is available in our new print edition, which is centered on housing. Pick up a copy around campus or find it digitally on our site. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. In the 1993 film Jurassic Park, all of the dinosaurs are genetically engineered to be female in order to prevent them from breeding out of control. But in the immortal words of Jeff Goldblum, life uh, finds a way, and the dinosaurs began reproducing, much to the dismays of the, of the park's operators and visitors. Seems like science fiction, right? But did you know that it is actually possible for some birds to fertilize their own eggs? This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg talks about condors and parthenogenesis. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about condors. And I know that's a kind of a weird topic to talk about here in the state of Wisconsin, but if you haven't heard, there was actually a really cool article that came out here just recently uh, by the National Geographic that talks about condors that maybe didn't actually need a male to have offspring. If you haven't heard of it before, did you know that there's something called parthenogenesis? Genesis. It means that there might be an animal in the wild, and this is common in some species. It's not just known to be in uh, species of birds, uh, but we also have seen it in sharks and uh, rays and lizards as well. It just means that they're able to self-fertilize an egg and then have a baby. Uh, that's pretty cool. It's How does that happen? It's sort of an asexual reproduction, and it happens when a female, somehow the cells that are produced by the female egg, actually behave like sperm and then they come together to refuse and then you have an egg that's formed. How did we know that this is something possible in condors? Well, California condors are probably one of the, I want to say, most studied birds here in the United States because they are just the classic recovery story in the United States. They are amazingly weird and kind of gross looking birds, but we love them because they remind us, at least here in Wisconsin, of turkey vultures. But they also stand for something really important here. And that's that, you know, birds are important as environmental indicators. And so, you know, their populations um, for that 
condor. It's a very large, big black bird, kind of grayish feathers with this ugly, bald pink head and neck. Um, <laughs> yes, that's what they look like. They actually came to a population crash to only 22 birds in 1982. And that's really sad. It was 22 of them left, and there were hopeful efforts to try captive breeding, and they did release um, after captive breeding, and they did finally build the population back. And this is, again, from that National Geographic article, if you want to read it. They've gotten up to about 500 or more individuals in the population, which is amazing. Now, that being said, you know, because it's been studied, um, and if we talk about genetics and population breeding for small populations, there are certain uh, scientists that actually study the genetic data of individuals of endangered or threatened species, and then they try to be matchmaker. So they take a bird, for example, California condor, they look at the genetic makeup, and then they have a computer program, or it used to be done by hand. They try to figure out, okay, who's the best mate for this bird that has a very different genetic makeup, and can they make a baby, another bird, that will then have genetic variability. And that's really important in terms of population conservation, because if there's genetic variability, it means there's less frequent occurrences of total population crash. So we didn't want to wipe out condors. We wanted to try to make as many genetically unique condors out there, if we could, so that their population would survive. You know, if there's a big outbreak of a disease, well, maybe one gene factor in that genetic makeup actually does pretty well or is resistant to that disease. So it kind of helps us to be able to, you know, fix what, what went wrong, um, fix their populations being low because it was all human caused, which I'll talk about in a second. And then be able to have that recovery be uh, successful, which they are definitely successful. So the fact that they can reproduce without uh, a male, if the females just lay an egg and it's fertilized, uh, that's pretty incredible. Uh, looking at the data, they found two birds that should have had uh, their father's hereditary material in their gene pool, and they did not. So they were able to figure out that this happens in condor species. Who knows how many other bird species do this now? But the reason that they were down to populations of 22 uh, individual birds in, in the area, which again, West Coast, is because of things like the use of DDT or DDE, which are different types of pesticides that are commonly used in agriculture. Um, it would say toxic substance that really, you know, was widely used here in our country, but, you know, studies of it eventually came out since it started in about 1972 that birds had their eggs become super breakable. So species like bald eagles and peregrine falcons, you know, the condor, all of those would lay their eggs and it would be so thin that it almost wouldn't look like an egg and then the babies wouldn't be able to hatch because that egg is so incredibly important to protect the inside so that that development is, is proper and, and able to persist. So the fact that uh, this chemical had such a widespread effect on populations here in the U.S. and lots of different bird species, specifically raptors and others, that's why they declined so rapidly. Add that to lead toxicity is another reason. California condors are just one of those species where if you think about turkey vultures, which are similar here in Wisconsin, they are eating uh, carcasses, right? They're going to fly down to the road, they're going to take the meat off of some dead animal that's, uh, you know, a hit by car deer or something, uh, you know, shear off the meat and be happy. Well, they're birds that like to, they see these little shiny objects, maybe there's lead that was used to hunt this particular animal, and they found that those are, you know, pretty apt to swallow pieces of lead. So unfortunately, you know, one small piece of lead can kill an entire bird. Um, we see that all the time here in our wildlife center from multiple different species, from raptors to waterfowl. 
and we see it most often now in the fall, which we are just starting to see some cases of that come through here at the Dane County Humane Society. Now for condors, you know, if you have lead issues, toxicity, uh, DDT, you can imagine why then there were only 22 birds left in the population in the 80s. Well, good news is we've rebounded from that, even though there still are actual effects of DDT continuing from being stored in marine animals that might be eaten by condors, like the sea lions that have DDT stored in their fat. You know, they have a lot of blubber. Uh, you know, that's all still affecting their populations for sure. So it's something to be uh, aware of of, you know, think about, you know, our environment and how everybody plays a role in the ecosystem, whether it's a bird, uh, whether it's a marine mammal, whether it's a human, you know, we put things into the environment like lead, DDT, pesticides, etc. And that has a cause and effect relationship. So we want to make sure that our populations stay healthy and that we do too, because we could easily be affected by both of those two things as well. So I think about the California condor and how they have had this cool evolutionary strategy to be able to reproduce without having a mate uh, so the female can just lay an egg to help get their populations back under control. How cool is that? But then also, you know, looking at the positive sides of reintroduction efforts as a conservation technique, seeing the condors bounce back, seeing eagles in our state of Wisconsin bounce back from that kind of stuff. It's just made us, I think, more conscientious as a society of people, you know, stop using the stuff that really poisons the earth and that doesn't affect uh, animals and humans together. So um, yeah, it's a cool thing. I read the article from National Geographic, thought it was worth sharing, and you should definitely look it up if you get the chance. You can read a lot of this information, but then also maybe explore a bit about how we've affected our planet and maybe research DDT or DDE or lead toxicity, because right now is the time to know about it and you might see a sick animal that needs help and you want to be able to help that. And that's what we're here for as rehabilitators. So, yep, this was our segment today about uh, California condors and some toxicities and uh, parthenogenesis, which is pretty cool. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you ever have a question about wildlife, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Moons are often overshadowed, sometimes literally, by their much larger planetary guardians. But lunar satellites can be every bit as astronomically interesting as the planets they revolve around. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Andrew Nine teaches us how to build a moon of our very own. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight I'd like to talk about how astronomers found a moon in the making almost a hundred light years away. First, let's talk about how planetary systems like our own solar system are formed. Stars are created when clouds of gas and dust collapse and heat up. The vast majority of the material in those clouds go to making the star, but not all of it. A tiny fraction ends up in orbit around the newborn star forming what is known as a protoplanetary disk. Tiny grains of dust in that disk collide with one another and stick together, forming bigger grains. These grains keep on colliding and growing larger and larger until planets are formed. 
This process, however, is far from neat and tidy. In fact, we think it's a common occurrence for planets to run into each other in violent collisions amidst all the chaos of the forming planetary system. This is how we believe our own moon came into being. One of the great discoveries of the Apollo missions was that the moon is made of the same material that Earth is. Prior to Apollo, it was hotly debated how the moon was formed. Did it form separately from Earth in the same cloud of gas? Was it captured and pulled into orbit around Earth? Did they form side by side? Nobody really knew until the Apollo missions brought back samples from the lunar surface. Scientists found that those moon rocks were made of the same minerals found on Earth, such as olivine and pyroxene. Crucially, the rocks found on the moon had the same properties as the rocks found in the crust and mantle of the Earth, the outermost layers, and not the material in the core deeper in the Earth. This led scientists to conclude that the moon was formed as the result of a giant impact. In the early days of the solar system, the planet that would become Earth collided with another object about the size of Mars, throwing out an enormous amount of debris from the outer layers of Earth. Much of this debris stayed in orbit around Earth and eventually came together to form what we know as the moon today. But what about moons in other planetary systems? If it happened to us, it probably happened to other planets in other solar systems as well. And that brings us to a paper recently published in the journal Nature by graduate student Tajana Schneiderman at MIT and her collaborators. In this paper, the team observed a protoplanetary disk around the star HD 172555, about 100 light years away from Earth. What stood out about the system immediately was the weirdly high amounts of silicon monoxide and carbon monoxide present in this system. When observing a protoplanetary disk, it's not at all unusual for scientists to find evidence of minerals like olivine and pyroxene, just like we find on Earth and the Moon. But silicon monoxide is weird because it indicates the presence of vaporized rock. We don't expect to see silicon monoxide at all unless a massive collision has taken place. The team of astronomers also found a surprisingly large amount of carbon monoxide in the disk. Carbon monoxide is super common in clouds of gas and dust in the galaxy, but things get tricky inside of a protoplanetary disk. Carbon monoxide is a pretty fragile molecule, so it tends to get broken apart easily by the light of the newborn star. Finding carbon monoxide in a protoplanetary disk means that it has to have gotten there recently. The astronomers found an amount of carbon monoxide in the disk equal to about 10 times the mass of the Earth's entire atmosphere, which is kind of a lot. Not only that, but the carbon monoxide is really close to the central star, within 10 astronomical units or 10 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's way too close to the star for carbon monoxide to survive for very long, and it happens to be at about the same place in the disk as the silicon monoxide. This led the team to conclude that the most likely scenario is a giant impact that took place between two forming planets in the disk, throwing out debris in the form of carbon monoxide and silicon monoxide. Based on the amount of carbon monoxide, this probably happened about 200,000 years ago, which in astronomical terms is super recent, practically yesterday. These new results shed new light on the formation of planets and moons, and they show us what to look for when studying giant impacts in other planetary systems. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Keep an eye on the Washburn Observatory Twitter at WashburnObs at Washburn underscore OBS for updates regarding public observing tomorrow, November 3rd. We will post an update regarding the weather about 30 minutes before we open. 
If the weather is good, we will be open for public observing from 7 to 9 p.m. Thank you for tuning in to Radio Astronomy tonight, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Nate Wagehout and Carolina Bursian. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrence and engineered the show. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enroy Chopadio. Good night.